0: Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. America's big tech companies are successful and powerful, And many observers have concerns about rising market concentration and threats to data privacy. But these tech titans are constantly innovating and providing a lot of benefit to consumers. So what, if anything, should governments do to regulate big tech? I'm excited to discuss this question and many others with Ben Thompson. Ben is the author and founder of Stratechery, a blog about the business and strategy of technology. He also co-hosts the Exponent podcast about tech and society, along with James Allworth. Ben, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm very happy to be here.
0: There are four American trillion-dollar tech companies, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and Google. That may even be the right order uh, by market cap. Will they be the four most valuable U.S. companies a decade from now?
1: My suspicion is yes, actually, which is a bit of a contrarian view in Silicon Valley. I, You know, the... Dominant theme is that you know, it's just a matter of time until the next paradigm next platform comes along and the current ones They don't go away, but they sort of diminish in importance You know, that's what happened with IBM. It's what happened with Microsoft and you know, the assumptions That's sort of what's going to happen going forward and I'm not so sure to be honest You know, if you think about you people think about these discrete events moving from sort of mainframes to PCs and then PCs to mobile And I think you could actually look at it holistically and what you're seeing is a shift from having like destination computing where to go to a room and all your sort of resources were in one place in that mainframe room to sort of spread out a little bit where you had you know, PCs on desks and you had sort of the back end office with servers and there was sort of an in- a company intranet to what we have today, which is these global hyperscalers like cloud services that, that are everywhere. And then mobile devices that are in your pocket all the time. And if, if that's actually one continuum from going from sort of one spot to everywhere and from sort of batch computing to sort of comp- continuous computing, it's not super clear actually what's next. I mean, are we going to interstellar computing? I mean, so, so given that, I think there will be new technologies. I think things like augmented reality will be a thing, you know, different ways of computing uh, with internet of things, devices, and, and the cloud will be super important to that. But my suspicion is all those new territories are going to be, led by the sort of the, the, the current companies that are, that
0: are, is, I mean, they, I mean, th- these are four companies that are, they do, they do different things. They're not just sort of, uh, you know, you know, you know, Google it's, you know, search, but, you know, obviously it's advertising. Amazon is retail, Microsoft cloud. It's, you know, more, uh, business with this, uh, business, but it has a sort of legacy business as well. Uh, and then Apple's, you know, selling, you know, These amazing devices. Am I thinking of them wrong as as four doing four different things or are they all going to be sort of doing many of the same things uh, but competing against each other?
1: Well I think the main thing is that they're all platforms and and by platform I mean they facilitate connections sort of on top of them. The word is actually quite descriptive for what a platform is where you know Microsoft Windows is like the classic platform where you had developers and you had users And they all needed Windows to sort of work together. And that's the case in all this. You uh, you know, Amazon, AWS, and Azure are the two, you know, largest cloud providers. Google is also competing in that space. So, you know, the vast, you know, I don't know the vast majority, but a lot of the, the websites that you and I visit or the apps that we use are running on, on AWS or running on Azure. And so once those are built, those are quite sustainable. You have a three-sided network where you have the, the folks building the application, you have the platform itself, and you have the users that are using it. And that's very hard to sort of shift and move around. And, and, and so that that strikes a degree of permanence. Meanwhile, you have Apple and Google are platforms on, in the mobile phone category with Android and iOS. And again, a lot that, that is a very sort of sticky situation and then Google has a third platform, which is advertising, the vast, you know, advertising all over the web, not just on Google search, but, but throughout websites all over are rest sort of on a foundation built by Google. And it's the fact that they're in the foundation of all these sorts of use cases that gives them that sort of, you know, a higher degree of permanence. that I think people might appreciate
0: I said 10 years, could, could you imagine in 20 years, there being a half a dozen tech companies, which are far more, which are you know, far more valuable, maybe far more influential in our lives than those four. I mean, or those sort of forever companies that for the rest, the rest of our, I mean, that's way a lot of sort of, you know, these in Washington people think of these companies are these big, powerful companies that are sort of n- never going away. And we're sort of at an end of history uh, as far as, uh, as far as technology is and whatever that new technology is, It'll be, you know, run by them and maybe toss in Facebook as well.
1: Well, at some point, I think we're going to learn a lesson about uh, proclaiming anything the end of history, and I suspect that that applies here as well. I mean, the, you know, I, I'm like I said, from a Silicon Valley perspective, to say even ten years out that this is going to be the case is pretty far out on mm-hmm. uh, on a whim. and that's a justified position. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, I think the burden of proof does lie. With those that are saying that this is a permanent situation, because that has simply not been the case with technology. I think the difference, what makes technology different, is just to stay in place requires huge amounts of investment and sort of constant improvement and iteration. And software is a very fragile thing. And the, the sort of dynamics that make these companies grow very quickly also means that they can lose users and can dissipate very, very quickly. If it makes sense, a dominant company that took decades to build is probably in many respects more durable than one that took a couple of years to build. And I think that that's sort of intuitive and I suspect that's the case. That's the case here. So my, you know, I, I think from a Washington perspective, I, I guess I get a little worried if they didn't see this coming, why should they think they now know what's sort of <laughs> the inevitable future for forever and ever born?
0: There are some concerns that there's that these companies are stifling competition. Is that a legitimate concern?
1: again, it depends on the level at which you're looking. Are, are, are we seeing competition for AWS and Azure as far as hyper clouds go? Uh, not really. Um, are we seeing competition as far as app stores go on iPhones or, or I should say operating systems, mobile operating systems? Not really. But I think those are for real justifiable reasons. Like the, the, the natural state of sort of an operating system market, is that there be only one or two. In fact, for many years, people were predicting that iOS and the iPhone would diminish and go away because Android had such larger market share that it would actually, you know, there's real winner-take-all effects to these platform markets. The fact that, you know, we actually ended up with two, and uh, which was, you know, actually when I first started Chatechery, gave me a lot of, (laughs) uh, I had a lot of runway to write about why there would be two instead of one, and, and that ended up being the case. But that's okay. I think that's sort of a natural outgrowth of these markets. Now, that certainly means there's a role for regulators to play. I think when it comes to like app stores, for example, the fact that the way that Apple and to a much lesser extent Google uh, sort of leverage their position to, you know, extract rents is something that's worth paying attention to. But I think the reason they are dominant is because that's the natural outcome of these uh of these markets with strong network effects i don't think it's because they were doing anything untoward.
0: you know you know one concern is that they're buying up uh, all these you know smaller companies that could be potential competitors or you know they that they themselves could be the new you know major tech companies five and ten years down the road are those are the are these acquisitions on net a good thing or a bad thing
1: this is a really interesting question because I think there's one. It's sort of kill
0: zone or thrill zone.
1: Right. I think there's an absence that looms large, which is Facebook's acquisition of Instagram, which I think was very problematic from a competitive standpoint. At the same time, when Facebook bought Instagram, it was a billion dollars. Most people were like, why are you spending so much money on this little photo editing app? You know, that is 30 million users, which in you know, tech terms is not very many. And do you, think back, it, do
0: you think it was a failure only in retrospect?
1: Or, 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 or really,
0: it could a regulator but at the time of purchase was there enough there that, that 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 a different decision should have been made?
1: I don't think there was enough there. I think Facebook could have challenged it in court had it been blocked, and they probably would have they probably would have won. Instagram had no business model. There was no obvious market to sort of compare sharing. Not that many users. Now, the reason why this is problematic is I think that's stuck in everyone's head about acquisitions are a bad thing. And to me, that actually, I'm very, very concerned we're moving into a dangerous sort of point of view on this, where we have one acquisition in mind, and there's lots of folks saying acquisitions are bad generally. And I think that's a very bad place to be. Acquisitions are very good. They're very important, particularly for tech. And the reason is, you know, new technology, you know, number one, this diffuses technology far more rapidly, where you, if someone has a real cool breakthrough and it goes on one of these platforms, it's immediately you know, sort of diffused to hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. That's a real consumer benefit. Uh, number two, I think it really spurs a lot more investment and risk-taking because there is an alternate exit strategy. You know, No one goes into building a company with the goal of being acquired. But the fact that that's a possibility means it's more likely that investments will be made. And also, it, 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 especially for really high risk technology investments, because those, those are already hard. Technology is already very hard. R&D is already very difficult. To say you can only do that investment if you also can build a business model go with it and go to market channel and go with it. When in reality, if you can just get it to work and that becomes attractive enough, that, that's a good reason to build that technology. And again, it gets diffused rapidly. And from a sort of employee and startup entrepreneur perspective, you know, a lot of like, for example, the FTC is looking at these, these under 80 million or under under $95 million transactions. This is madness. (laughs) All these acquisitions are failed companies. No one starts a company to be acquired for less than $95 million. What these are are acquihires, where it's a good team, smart team, built something, didn't work. Facebook acquires them, Google acquires them. To me, this is one of the biggest examples of the big companies giving back to the tech ecosystem because they're sort of providing a soft landing spot for folks that are going to give it a go. And the vast majority of these founders go into a Facebook or Google for a couple of years, wait for their shares to invest, then they go out and do another startup. And that's a great thing. And none of these companies that are acquired for such insignificant amounts of money are would-be Facebook or Google competitors.
0: But there's, but there's certainly sort of this, this wave in Washington, DC, where not just sort of, you know, those smaller acquisitions, those, uh, you know, aqua hires, but, you know, these very, very large, you know, acquisitions, or at least they're now, you know, maybe big, big, you know, big, important companies like, like Instagram, you know, to, to, to undo them, you know, split up uh, Facebook into WhatsApp, Instagram, and then Facebook. Yeah. I mean, mean, do you, I mean, do you sense that there's, that, that, that there's, been any real thought about what that would be like and how, you know, what that would do to those companies and what that would do to like the benefits that those companies are currently giving consumers?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think that the, the fact that the majority of these uh, ideas are posited without actually articulating the harm that comes to consumers is sort of, you know, evidence in itself. Because the reality is, is, is no one, no consumer feels, you know, put out by Amazon. Everyone loves Amazon. Is it hard to be a supplier on Amazon? Absolutely. Are those suppliers limited and gated from the market? Absolutely not. I mean, I think you know, that's a real challenge if you push a lot of these critics uh, about these companies is that the, there's, there's no gating of the market here. This isn't like this, the railways of old, sort of if you didn't have access to the railway, you had, you had no recourse. Like you can go directly to consumers and the fact that that's difficult and hard is just a matter is a fact a matter of business. So broadly speaking, I think that there's been a real failure to make the case about why, from a consumer perspective, this is a problem. As far as the second point, uh, you know, unwinding acquisitions, I personally have just a bit of a real qualms about that, you know, like, if the rules can be changed retroactively, how can you trust the rules in the first place? And It's a real sort of violation, I think, of the rule of law. So, you would, you would,
0: so it may have been somehow with perfect foresight, maybe, you know, the uh, Instagram acquisition isn't done. But now, given where we're at, you would not unwind that acquisition.
1: I would not. And one, it's been a long time. It's been nearly a decade. That's a long time. Number two, it discounts and the real investment and impact Facebook made. I think that it is... It betrays a real lack of understanding of how these companies operate and what they bring to the market. To say that Instagram would be anywhere near as large or as profitable as it is today, had it not been for Facebook's investment. And in fact, the real reason why I regret that acquisition is because the reason why it's so so impactful on the market is because Facebook and Instagram is a unified advertising market where where you can it's sort of a one stop shop for any advertiser. And I think that if Instagram were separate, advertisers would have had to diversify and build different strategies that were predicated on serving multiple apps, whereas now they can just sort of go to Facebook. But, but implicit in that is an acknowledgment that a huge part of Instagram's value is predicated at, on being a part of Facebook and the work that Facebook did there. You know, Facebook also drove a lot of new users to Instagram. I mean, again, we're going from 30 million to over a billion. Facebook is is very very good at growth, very good at pushing folks there. And are we really going to go in and say we're going to separate this and uh, assume that everything Facebook contributed was was not for consumer welfare, was not benefited? You know, the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. I mean, and, that, but that that exact
0: that. point. That I mean, that exact point. That it seems to me that most of the people were interested in breaking these company breaking these companies up, heavily regulated them. They're, act, they're sort of activists they're antitrust activists and they're, they're maybe they're attorneys I'm sure they're very, a lot of them, very smart people. I just just listening to them I get a sense that they're sort of not business people like they don't know how businesses work. they don't know sort of the history of business everything Amazon does they're sort of amazed by like like Amazon's the first person ever to think of you know, you know of, of doing private labeling. Right. I, I just want. There just seems to be a, be a little bit, and I'm Greek, so I love like using the word hubris. There just seems to be a little hubris about you're going to take these these big, you know, these biggest, most valuable companies, and you're going to start just splitting, splitting off chunks. Instagram here, YouTube there, ways there, uh, AWS there. It seems like a
1: lot. I mean, I completely agree. I mean, I, I will give a little bit of credit here. I mean, I think it is very hubristic. Uh, I do understand and appreciate the sentimentality against sort of bigness. You know, and, and honestly, I, I would just like a little more, like, I think that there's some folks that are kind of honest about this. They don't like these companies because they are large and dominant. And that to them feels against sort of, you know, the American ethos of sort of like small business, mm-hmm. you know, which is a, a long running impulse in American politics. I think the entire Jefferson sort of wing, Democratic wing has been predicated on pushing against centralized power, you know, pushing it back to the, you know, the farmers and rural and things along those lines which is ironic given the sort of demographic base of the parties today. But the, the reality is, is I, I can appreciate that impulse, but let's be honest about it. Like this is just, we want to break these companies up because they're big uh, and not because there's actually been demonstrated harm. Now, now when the, there, I think there are harms to be looked at. I think the app store is a significant issue. I think you know, Apple's control in particular. I think Google's control of the advertising market is deeply problematic. Google for many, many years did this thing where they were called the, the the last look, where you would bid on advertising on a website, and Google would run the run the auction. They would put in a bid to show an ad to this person, and someone else would win the bid. Then Google would say, "Oh, you won the bid. You must know something I don't know. I, you know, I'm going to not just trump that bid, but I'm going to actually incorporate that information about this user, who I know it is, into my own data." And they were basically stealing data from other advertisers. Sorry, there's a bit of a uh, that might have been hard to follow. But the key thing, it, the key thing is, is that it was extremely we so- abusive. We have a sophisticated audience. <laughs> well, but the key thing is, it was very, very abusive, and it's been going on for for years. That is where attention should be focused. It's like actual, real abuse of the system, and uh, and like so, there there are absolutely things to look at. The fact that Amazon is really good at uh, delivering packages quickly and acquires a lot of customers for that reason, which gives them power over suppliers. To me that's good business
0: is surveillance capitalism a real thing and if it is a real thing is it a bad thing
1: uh, I, I think that surveillance capitalism as a term is a tell for for a particular point of view that i pretty strongly disagree with when people think about you know it's what i can understand when people think about these companies you know accumulating debt that on you i think that the vision that comes to mind is sort of like the You know, East German Stasi and like those pictures of like the files and bookshelves of file cabinets. and You know, you can go in and look up someone's file and I can look up Jim and see, you know, what what has he been up to? And the reality is, is if you just think about it, that by definition would not scale to hundreds of millions of people. Right. There's not enough file cabinets in the world. The the way this data is actually accumulated and and used, it's a series of like vector equations that are inscrutable to anyone. And, and, and so when you go in, that data is not sold or processed. What an advertiser does is they walk to Facebook and says, we have a product that, you know, really appeals to, you know, men in their late twenties, primarily in, you know, we want to target people men in their late twenties in Los Angeles, you know, that like sports and Facebook doesn't say who those people are. They just say, okay, we will find people that fit this and we will put this advertisement in front of them. So Facebook is acting as sort of a mediator between the advertiser and the user. They're not selling your data. That's a, that's, I think, um, if someone says that Facebook and Google are selling data, that's a real tell that I think they're not being particularly serious about this conversation. Now, now, is that a, is that a bad thing? I don't think so. In fact, I would go the opposite. I think it's actually a positive thing. And, and, and this is why obviously the, you know, the idea of accumulating all this data is especially if you have the sort of this sort of East German view of things, it seems very problematic at the same time. It's, kind of implicit in using computers you know computers by their nature churn and throw off tons and tons and tons of data you know logs locations ip addresses all this all this sort of stuff the the websites you you visit everything is locked and given that the the positives that come out of this are, are really quite quite significant facebook and google for example you know, everyone's waiting. Why haven't they disrupted TV? Why is TV still relatively strong TV advertising in particular? It's starting to come down a little bit just this year, but it, it, it persisted for many years. And the reason is because a lot of advertisers on like a Facebook and a Google are not like big CPG companies, like, like PNG or something on those lines. There's small businesses often that are started on the internet to go direct to consumer and are only viable because the internet makes it possible to serve people across a wide geographic area with super low costs And you can advertise directly to your intended customer at a much lower price than is possible like advertising on tv for example this is tremendously beneficial to economic growth it's beneficial to small business formation it's beneficial to sort of new opportunities it's beneficial to consumers they get a much more wider array of services instead of one size fits all from the big you know consumer packaged goods companies they get all these individual unique items that weren't possible previously this benefit i think is sort of widely overlooked and there's not a real explanation about, you know, from the data perspective, what would we do differently? I mean, the you know, all these privacy laws end up just cementing sort of these biggest players. You know, so you where think I that's
0: think that's a real privacy... thing, how, how regulation can actually, you know, Well, maybe the companies in an ideal world, they would prefer to be left alone. But if there's going to be regulation, well, ultimately, you know, they they will benefit because they can deal with the regulation and the little guys can't.
1: Yeah, we've already seen that in Europe. I mean, GDPR has only increased uh, Google and Facebook's dominance of of advertising. And the reason is the, you know, you need to, they collect all the data on their own platform and then they can serve the ads using their own platform and they're not passing data around to anyone. Whereas your typical sort of publication, for example, they don't have the scale to, to collect, to have that sort of same data operations. They rely on third parties to do it for them. And sort of, you know, that third parties that work across multiple sites. Well, guess what? That sort of third party integration is exactly the sort of thing that is targeted and and hurt by regulations like GDPR. And so, you know, Europe released, you know, just this week, Europe released all these sort of big data pool and we're going to be competitive with Europe, with the U.S. and China and all of this these talking points are starkly at odds with the regulation they've already passed as far as sort of privacy things go. So I think there, you know, this idea there being a tension between privacy and competition is a very, very real thing. And I think is, you know, uh, I think the US should be wary of following something like GDPR at the risk of really, you know, really cementing. You know, we we think these big guys are dominant now, just wait till we see what happens after, you know, a similar law is passed.
0: Do you have any idea what we should do about content moderation and what that regulation should look like?
1: It is a brutally difficult problem with sort of like impossible trade-offs. You know, I think we could start first off by sort of acknowledging that and not holding companies responsible. You know, it's very easy. Whatever a company decides, you can always choose the opposite and say they're doing it wrong. Just given the nature of these choices that are happening. Uh, where I would start is first and foremost, the discussion in Washington about Section 230 is madness. <laughs> it makes, I think it belies a real misunderstanding what Section 230 is and does. Section 230 uh, arose, there, there was a, a case uh, with CompuServe a, a, a long time ago where uh, CompuServe was not editing anything on their forums. Someone wrote something disparaging about a company. CompuServe was sued and the judge said, no, CompuServe is, is not liable, it's, it's third parties. A couple of years later, Prodigy was sued uh, by Oakmont, uh, the name case me, the, the Wolf on Wall Street firm. Yeah. Um, and Oakmont what Stratton, happened was, right. yes, that's right, that's right. And Prodigy lost. And the reason they lost the case is the judge said, because Prodigy was moderating discussion, by the act of moderating, they were taking responsibility for all, everything on their platform. and And so the, the Section 230 was an explicit response to the Prodigy case, which said, Just because you moderate does not make you responsible for everything on your platform, which is critical. What people, these folks that want to take away 230, the only way for a company to respond is to end all moderation. So if you want zero moderation on the internet, well then go ahead, you know, remove 230, what's going to happen is we're going to have this range of zero user generated content and total mayhem like 8chan everywhere. Like there there will be no middle ground, like section 230, staked out a middle ground where companies could moderate, could do their best to moderate, and wouldn't be held liable if they didn't do it perfectly. Yeah. And me- to me, that's yeah. that's a great compromise that, that was made. And and it it seems uh, very mistaken uh, that we're talking about getting rid of that.
0: Well, I think you have a lot of people who don't know what to do, and that seems like something to be done, and it seems like a silver bullet
1: and that it, because they don't want to face the fact that these are impossible trade-offs, right. that, like there there are trade-offs
0: really, and there's consequences and it's not going to be neat and clean. And sometimes it is a muddle, but right.
1: Uh, the framework, the framework that I would use is I think anything that's sort of on the infrastructure level, there should be complete immunity. So for example, if you're an ISP, you should not be responsible for what goes over your wires. And this should apply to copyright too, by the way, the fact that Comcast can be sued because you know, a user is pirating content to me is very problematic. Like it's infrastructure. Infrastructure shouldn't be getting involved in the bits. Uh, you know, the a, a website like AWS should be immune. If you get into a higher level where you are actually directly interfacing with users, then I mean, in the U.S., you're obviously you know the government is gated by the First Amendment. But I think there is room and it's justifiable to act more there. I don't have a problem with Facebook or Twitter sort of you know moderating and. And deleting stuff and banning folks, because at the end of the day, those folks can go and set up their own website. Like, let's be clear about how this works. Like, it, that's it, that's the nature of the web. And so, we should preserve the ability for anyone to speak. I I, I don't necessarily think we need to preserve by law the ability of everyone to be heard. To sort of use you know a, right. a, an axiom, and I think that's sort of a reasonable place to to settle on.
0: Lots of policymakers in the U.S. are not only worried about. China becoming a tech superpower but the leading tech superpower uh, does state capitalism work have they figured something out that we have not figured out
1: i don't i don't think so and my skept- i think it's important to note that the you know the first predominant part of sort of china's rise as far as technology goes has been adopting and copying western technology so, you know, so we should we should be clear about that you know, certainly, China has now proceeded in its own direction, particularly from a consumer perspective with apps like WeChat and WeChat Pay and Alibaba and things along those lines. And that's fine. I, I think a lot of those is a path dependency thing where in China, everyone came came online in the last 10 years, mostly via smartphone. They sort of skipped the sort of PC era. Yes, there were PCs in China, but that era is a much, much, much smaller number. And so this enabled the creation of an entirely new kind of experience a new kind of app a new kind of payment by virtue of if you were if you were doing something for the first time and you could assume that everyone had a smartphone how would you do it well you would do it differently than it developed in the us where the us all these things developed over time in the you know credit cards came out in the late 60s then the the pc And, and so our path to payments for example is a very very different one i would ascribe the differences in the markets more to path dependence than I would to sort of state control. That noted, something like a WeChat, for example, is also a product of state control. WeChat is a surveillance network. You want to talk about surveillance, it is a surveillance network. Those doctors that were spoken to the police because they were talking about that, the virus, they were in a private WeChat group. So just to be very, very clear about sort of why the government is very pleased about WeChat being everywhere and controlling payments and everyone's talking on it, that gives them an eye into everything. And so, you know, certainly I could, you know, that's a great way to sort of receive, you know, achieve dominant market you know, <laughs> access as, as a company. Is that something we want, we want to replicate? I don't think so. Do we need I, a Made in
0: America 2025 plan? I mean,
1: I, I mean, I, I, I don't think so. I, and there, there's a bit of sort of looking at history, uh, my personal view on how innovation matters. I think that innovation comes from an environment where you are able to take, take risks, you're able to fail. You're able to rumor monger, to use a Chinese term, you're able to sort of go in your own direction. And I'm actually increasingly concerned about China going forward simply because, you know, China was so freewheeling and was an arguably more capitalistic than the US in some respects for sort of going on 30, 30 years. And that was a big part of their success. And they are rapidly accelerating in the opposite direction, much more state control, much more top down control and while that may work in You know driving massive investments in things like semiconductor factories. Is that going to work to actually create innovation? I don't think innovation is a product of massive amounts of investment in central planning I think it's a product of sort of free markets and the ability to try something new and and you succeed or fail Based on whether people want not based on whether sort of a government official thinks it's a good idea So this may sound sort of idealistic and i'm saying Mm -hmm. like spouting the party line, but I think history is in my favor, and uh, you know we'll have a real sort of test case for it over the next ten to twenty years. And it, it follows the U.S. should be weaning against government control, should be going in the opposite direction, should be driving for more freedom, for freer markets, and because you know we don't have it in us to compete with China when it comes to centralized control. We like China likes to brag about building a hospital and throwing a bunch of people in it. Well, one, property rights were trampled. Two, those hospitals were more like prisons. Like, wait. Like, We don't, that's not the way we don't, being in the middle would be worse than anything. Why do we want to imitate China on China's game? We should play our game and go in the opposite direction.
0: Um, If not a made in America 2025 plan, do you have any advice for policymakers uh, who are worried that the U.S. won't stay on the tech frontier?
1: I would start at sort of a, a high level, which is we're not going to out central control China. So we should probably run in the opposite direction. So the instinct should be towards, you know, reducing regulations, reducing burdens uh, in in, in this direction. Uh, Number two, as far as, so, I mean, (laughs) I kind of feel like I'm cheating the answer because I'm saying the answer is to do less, not to do more. But at a a base level, I do agree that's the case. Now, is there room for sort of more investment in sort of core science, uh, you know, sort of fundamental breakthroughs absolutely i do think you know there is a lot about the the us having you know the breakthroughs coming from universities uh, as far as the internet goes one thing to keep in mind is sort of the bell labs thing what happened is this arguably the greatest regulatory triumph in you would have an antitrust the us settled with at&t and at&t had to sort of license for free all their things in bell labs What's ironic about that is everyone widely criticized the government for, for giving it AT&T. And actually what was labeled at the time as a government failure was a massive triumph. I, To that end, I think licensing and patent law is a huge choke on innovation. The reality is that there's such a return to being first in technology and in software that to layer on sort of patent protection on top of that makes zero sense. Like the point of patents, is not patents for their own sake. The point of the, like the founders realize patents are problematic. The point is to, you know, it's a government enforced monopoly. The point though is to give a reason to innovate, to give a spur to innovation. Well, technology and software companies don't need a reason to innovate, they don't need a spur to innovation. So I think overhauling sort of the, the, the patent environment around software in particular, around licensing, would actually do, a, a, be a tremendous boon to innovation.
0: And finally, there's been some criticism of tech and Silicon Valley that they used to they used to do big things for America. You know, they put up they put a man on the moon and now they give us, you know, social media. So there's been this complaint that Silicon Valley and American tech, they need to dream big dreams again. Do you do you think that American tech continues to dream big dreams or do the critics have a point?
1: I mean, there is. You know, I, I would note that I'm sitting in Taipei, Taiwan, uh, recording a podcast with you over a Silicon Valley company software that is going to be published and dispersed all over the world in a, you know in a way that really wasn't possible not that long ago. So I do think that there is easy. What well, is easy to overlook? Sort of what has happened to date. Do we need to do more as far as like things like going to space, going to the moon, overhauling you know transportation? I, I do. I do think so. I, I think that there is a you know. I'm a little fuzzier on what that means sort of, uh, you know, sort of going forward. I think there is a question about, you know, there's probably things around, around, you know, maybe a new funding mechanism, you know, is venture capital the right fit? You know, venture capital obviously is long-term investment, but it's also long-term investment that wants to return in like a decade or so. Maybe we need a new vehicle and new regulations around sort of financing that make it viable to build projects that are 20 year projects or 30 or, or year projects? It's a good question. I do th- agree with sort of the broad critique. I guess I haven't thought super deeply about the right approach to it, but I, I, there is something there and it's also both overstated if, if you can sort of hold both those thoughts in your head.
0: Uh, I'll do my best. Uh, my guest today has been Ben Thompson. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Absolutely, thanks for having me.